Hi everyone, and welcome back to The Mumps, the McGill University Medical Podcast Series. I'm Russ. And I'm Eric. And today we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Richard Menzies and Dr. Jonathan Campbell. Dr. Menzies is a professor in the Division of Respiratory Medicine at McGill University, and Dr. Campbell is a postdoctoral fellow at the Research Institute of the McGill University Health Centre. Today we discussed two of their most recent papers. The first is entitled, Four Months of Rifampin or Nine Months of Isoniazid for Latent TB in Adults. And the second is, Safety and Side Effects of Rifampin versus Isoniazid in Children. Both of these were published in the New England Journal of Medicine in August 2018, and we really hope that you enjoy this episode. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Menzies. Why don't you just start by taking us through the rationale for these studies? Sure. Basically, uh, preventing active TB or treatment of latent infection has traditionally involved a regimen of nine months of uh, isoniazid, which is obviously long, especially for people who feel quite healthy has to be taken daily uh, and has uh, some serious side effects, including uh, toxicity to the liver, which can rarely be fatal. So that a lot of, there's been a lot of work over the last 20 years, really, to look for alternative regimens. And there are others that are all shorter. Uh, but in truth, none of the others are really substantially safer. But they still have some risk of serious side effects. And so rifampin is a you know, well-known drug, very effective for TB. There is some data, there was some data to suggest it could be given for a short, would work faster. And uh, there was also a little bit of data that might be safer. So that's, so we kind of tested whether shorter regimen would be safer, better completed, and at least as effective. All right, great. So Dr. Campbell, could you please tell us how you went about testing this research question? Could you describe to us your research methodology? Um, so to really test whether, well, in a phase two trial that was published before this New England paper, head-to-head, uh, -head, four months of rifampin and not, uh, compared to nine months of INH, isoniazid, uh, was shown to be safer and more often completed. So to actually test the efficacy of this for preventing long-term TB development, they had to obviously uh, recruit more participants as development of active TB is already a, quite a rare event, probably about one per 1,000 person years in an untreated person. So you have to obviously recruit several thousand people. So to test this head to head, uh, it was the study design was meant to be quite generalizable to several settings. So it included sites in Southeast Asia and Africa, Brazil, and several Canadian sites and recruited over 6,000 people and did a one-to-one -one randomization to receive rifampin or isoniazid. And each patient was followed up for 28 months from the time they ended uh, their treatment. So that was kind of the principle of uh, following efficacy and active TB was, was detected after during follow-up via phone calls and if somebody was perhaps lost for follow-up they checked it against national uh, TB registries just to make sure uh, that no cases were missed. 
And in terms of the difference in the primary outcomes between the two studies, in the adults, you guys were looking mostly at efficacy as opposed to in pediatrics, it was uh, more of a safety profile. What was the reasoning behind that? Sure. So first of all, the phase two trial was done in adults only. So we demonstrated kind of safety, better safety of rifampin in adults. And so we launched, when we launched the adult study for efficacy, we, frankly, the scientific advisory committee for the trial very strongly recommended that we test safety and tolerability in children, saying we can prove efficacy in adults. Most people will believe efficacy in adults is going to be the same in children but people will not believe safety and tolerability in adults transfers over to children. So you have to show that in children. All right, that makes sense. So what were the major findings in the adult study and in the pediatric study? Well, so the major finding in the adult study, um, I'll let Dr. Mentor speak to the pediatric study. Sure. So in the adult study, uh, what was found is that the primary outcome of development of active PB within 28 months of completing treatment was found to be no significant difference between people who have received four months of rifampin or four months of, or sorry, or nine months of isoniazid. And that was whether they were diagnosed microbiologically or clinically. There was no statistical difference between the two, which proved non-inferiority of the treatment of the two of rifampin to isoniazid. Another significant finding was a, it confirmed the results of the phase two trial in terms of safety and completion where, again, rifampin was shown to be much safer than isoniazid, but a uh, 2% rate of adverse events, so people stopping rifampin due to an adverse event, and 4% in the isoniazid arm, which is statistically significant. And for completion, again, there's about a 10 to 15% uh, more people who completed the four-month uh, course of treatment than the nine-month course of biomarkers. And the pediatric study? So in the kids, uh, something like 829 randomized, and completion was significantly better. Again, about the same difference, although completion in kids was generally better, which is, of course, the it's not the kids after all, it's the parents. <laughs> and as we all know, the parents are more likely to give to their kids, it turns out, than to themselves. So completion was much better in both arms, but still significantly better in the four-width arm. Tolerability... In terms of minor side effects, there was no difference between the two arms. And major side effects, like serious side effects, again, no difference, but actually no events at all in either arm. So, which is good. I mean, obviously, even the 9-9-H sounds pretty good in the kids, except it's nine months of getting your kid to take the pills, which is challenging. Uh, and, again, we were interested to make sure 4-RIF was safe and well-tolerated, clearly very safe absolutely no serious adverse events at all. So no problems there. The other interesting thing is there were only two kids out of the 800 who developed active PB, both in the INH arm. So although very small numbers developed active PB, they were both in the INH arm, none in the RIF arm. So again, we can't complete conclude that RIF is better, but it was non-inferior. And older studies, 9-INH is very effective, which is long and toxic and blah, blah, blah. So we weren't trying to show that 4-RIF was better. It's very hard when you've got 90% plus efficacy already. But to show that it's not worse, that's all we were really after. And what do you think was the cause of the difference in the completion rates? Is it simply that one is shorter than another, the, the duration of treatment? 
I'd say that's probably the largest factor is one that really it's easier for someone to take a pill um, for four months than for nine. And I'm sure, I know they do this practice in pharmacy school where they try and put you through this, take your pills, go through the patient, and I promise you every, pharm every pharmacy student will tell you shorter is better. And the literature plays that out very nicely. All the studies, the biggest driver, actually, in most models is duration. I mean, the other thing is we looked at month-by-month -month dropout, and they were mm -hmm. There was a, a bigger group that, when they were randomized to nine months INH, just said, you know, they walked out, and that was it. And it seemed so to be right off the bat That's also. Right. Yeah. So there's kind of a group that got discouraged right off the bat. Nine yeah. months was just, like, way mm -hmm. too far away. But that was relatively small numbers. And after that, it was fairly parallel. The two groups kind of fell out. And of course, but at four months, there was no more dropouts before RIF. They were done. So it's, yeah, it's some of it's kind of looking down the road. Nine months just seems awfully long. But the biggest thing is just month by month uh, duration. Great. So can you discuss the implications of your findings uh, in terms of shaping medical practice, I understand that the WHO has put forth certain recommendations in light of your study's findings. Could you talk a bit about how it's been received within the medical community? Um, it's probably easier for me. So, first of all, I, I've given a lot of talks since last July, uh, locally, webinars, whatever. Uh, Jonathan's also gone and given some talks, or he's going to give some talks and stuff. So. You know, there's a long process to get people to change practice, right? Mm -hmm. And everybody's got to hear it somehow, um, which is good with podcasts. It's beam it out there. Um, so guidelines, so the American guidelines are still in the works, new guidelines. Okay. I'm, I'm on that committee, but I know that 4RIF will be one of the new preferred regimens. used to be 9INH, 9 months INH, mm -hmm. since 2000 till now. And the new guidelines, 2019 guidelines, it'll be four RIF and actually another short regimen of three months, which is an alternative, but it happens not to be as safe. So those will be the two new preferred regimens in the US. Uh, WHO, yes, they're, right now they recommend it for uh, lower incidence countries like North America, Europe, and so on. And, but they have told me actually yesterday that they're going, part of their plan for the year is to reevaluate for RIF you know, globally. And Canadian guidelines, that's coming out, it'll be out in 2019 as well. So yeah, it's kind of a combination of talks, publications, guidelines, beat the bushes, shorter, safer, better. Cost effective as well. Go ahead. Well, cost effectiveness has played out even with without this trial, really, okay. because uh, even though INH is very effective, uh, fewer people complete it. So a mm. less effective drug that's more often completed might actually, at a population level, be better. Now that non-inferiority has been shown, actually the, I mean, the cost-effectiveness analysis that's tagged onto the trial is important to actually quantify how cost-effective it is. I think right now the literature's out there to say that we can be reasonably certain that, yeah definitely cost-effective. We just now have better data to say how much better. Right. And going back to the idea of some areas of the world maybe not being great uh, areas to use the revamp and um, 
treatment protocol. Have you noticed in your study if you know certain areas responded less well to the drug, or is that just data from other studies? Yeah. So the, the big problem with uh, rifampin is that, it, or any TB drug, is that if you if you have someone who's in front of you that you think has latent TB, but they don't actually have latent TB, they actually have active TB, then you treat active TB usually with at minimum two drugs and usually three or four. And we do that to prevent the emergence of resistance. Same in malaria, same in HIV. You know, we know that combination therapy prevents resistance from emerging. So if, I mean, there are plenty of countries in the world where it's, I mean, it's difficult to rule out active TB. You need an x-ray, you need you know, microbiologic tests. So if you don't have all those, or they're not good quality, not good access, you have trouble ruling out active TB. So then you're giving rifampin to people, mono-rifampin therapy, and if they have active TB, they'll develop rifampin resistance, which is hard to treat. So that's the risk, and that's the worry, and that's what's held up at WHO from just saying, go for it. So having finished the study, can you speak to the challenges that you may have experienced while uh, carrying out the uh, project? It's a big randomized trial. And, you know, I mean, I have this slide that I can bore you with, but <laughs> basically the first study that we did was here in Montreal at Montreal Chest, uh, over in St. Urban, single center, small study. That was funded in 2001. And in 2018, we finally wrapped up the efficacy study and published it and so on. So that was like a 17-year span to get the whole thing done. So one of the strengths of your studies is that they are very generalizable, having been done in multiple different countries and different populations. Uh, one population that you do comment on in your papers is the HIV population, in that there was uh, somewhat of a restricted amount of patients with HIV in the populations that you looked at. I was wondering if you could speak to whether or not this might have impacted your findings. Some studies, some drugs, there are more problems and more side effects in the HIV-infected population, but there was a, a series of studies were done on two months rifampin and pyrazinamide, so two anti-TB drugs, but a different one. And that one was very safe in the HIV-infected population, and when they rolled it out in HIV-uninfected general population, oof, it was like 15% severe hepatitis. Mm -hmm. It turned out to be the PVID A, not the rifampin, thank God. But uh, it turned out that that combination was much more toxic than HIV uninfected, completely unexpected. Yeah, so we didn't we tested we had about 400 HIV infected people in total in our trial, which is small. So it's difficult to to do a sub analysis to say, okay, it's safe. I mean, we didn't see any difference, but you know, it's such a small number, we couldn't be absolutely certain of efficacy and safety in that subpopulation, sure. which obviously is a big population. But it was partly the sites where we were, and also most HIV-infected people are already on antiretrovirals. And rifampin does cause a lot of drug interactions. That's actually the big uh, side effect or potential problem with it. The good news is it's very predictable. You know, you know the drugs they're taking. But it is a management you know, problem. So that's why we had less recruitment. All right, and to wrap things up, what's left for you and your group? What are uh, some of the studies that you have coming down the pipeline? Uh, well, currently, um, on this study that's been done, uh, there's a couple of sub-analyses underway. 
um, how I'm doing safety analysis between uh, lefanopin and isoniazid. I'm looking at uh, kind of non-study drug determinants of adverse events. So if you're going to get someone lefanopin, what subpopulations should you be more concerned about? Uh, hematologic adverse events, hepatotoxicity, rash. Likewise, if you have to give isoniazid, which population should you be most concerned about? And maybe how long do you have to continue doing blood tests? What's the timing? Uh, you know, when you are treating someone with rifampin, maybe you should be concerned about rash only early on in treatment, and then you can kind of stop. And later on is when you want to be more focused on hematologic aspects of the of the medication. I know there's other another study by somebody else in our lab, Dr. Bastos, who's going to be looking at the cost effectiveness of the two regimens. And then we actually met just today to talk about looking at uh, determinants of adherence between the two regimens as well. So we have a, a few other things going on. So uh, one thing we're looking at is um, a trial we've called 2R squared, which is high dose rifampin for two months as opposed to regular. So now we figure four months rifampin is the new standard. So that's the new standard. <laughs> but four months is still long. And completion is, you know, in in programmatic conditions in real life is, you know, it's not as good as in these trials. So, you know, still 20, 30% of people drop out of treatment. So two months is going to be better. And, and there is some evidence that high dose work, you can, you can shorten things even, even better. So two months high dose work versus four months regular dose. That's one trial that we're hoping to start soon. And another trial we're looking at just programmatic aspects of how to rule out active to be essential for tests, what combination of tests is the best. Awesome. Very exciting stuff. Um, I just want to thank you again for coming on the show. Um, wish you all the best in the future. And uh, yeah, thanks very much. Thank you. Great. Pleasure. Okay, so we hope you enjoyed today's episode. You are listening to The Mumps, the McGill University Medical Podcast Series. Stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you.